this episode is brought to you by Saris. Saris is a company in Madison, Wisconsin that creates amazing functional pieces of art for your car to transport your bike. They are efficient. They're for cyclists, by cyclists. It's an accessory for your car and your lifestyle, literally an extension of who you are. It just looks good with or without a bike. They're lightweight and durable, and the accessibility factor is huge. Even our young kids are able to move the bike rack when they need to get in the rear of the car or whatever reason. Um, It's so easy, so functional. So check it out. We have a giveaway. We actually have a rack that we're giving away, compliments of Sarah's. So check out swimbikemom.com forward slash giveaway. So thank you all for listening and enjoy the show. Today's episode is a very inspirational one with Natalia Cohen. Natalia was a member of a team of six women who set out to row across the Pacific Ocean from San Francisco to Australia. This was a journey of almost 9,000 miles, nine months at sea, and it's really a tale of courage and heart and perseverance and the human spirit. I love this story, and there's a documentary out on Netflix called Losing Sight of Shore, which highlights the journey of these incredible women, Um, and they're nine months, nine months at sea, you guys. It's really awesome. So this interview is with Natalia, who did the vast majority of the photography and video work while on the boat and doing her share of the rowing. So enjoy this episode. It's really a great chat with Natalia and she is such a positive and inspirational person. I have Natalia Cohen here. Hello. Hi there Meredith. How are you? I'm great. I am even better now that I'm talking to you. (laughs) (laughs) So you guys, this is just an amazing woman on the Skype call today. So Um, I gave you guys a little bit of background on exactly how she came to be super um, in the limelight right now with the documentary Losing Sight of Shore, where she was part of a team of women. Now, the documentary says four women, but you had six, right? That's right. Yeah. So we were, there was four of us on the boat at any one time, but as a full team, there were six of us. So three of us rode the full journey. And then the other three rotated that fourth seat on the boat. So they worked like a relay team, basically. Mm-hmm. So just to explain that. Okay. So you guys rode from San Francisco to Australia in a planned journey of six months, but it took nine on a boat named Doris. That's right. Okay. So <laughs> let's talk about that. How in the world did this vision come to be? Uh. Um, well, the project was started by Laura. Well, it was actually started by someone that wasn't even involved. But Laura, um, I suppose, got involved the first out of all of us. And that was over four years ago now. And she had to basically put a team together. Um, so she set up this recruitment process where she was looking for other women to join her on this huge expedition. And I actually came across an advert on a website, and that's how I found out about the expedition. So I'd just been in Tanzania, actually, at the time. I'd finished managing um, a safari lodge, and my contract had come to an end, and I saw this advert on a website. And I think the the ocean has always been a huge love of mine. So being in and around the ocean is is always my happy place. So mm-hmm. that's what drew me to the advert in the first place. But to be very honest with you, when I initially saw it, I actually thought, what a ridiculous thing to do. <laughs> like, why would anybody want to do that? Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I suppose a big part of that was the fact that I had actually never rode before. Right. I was going to ask you that. You said you like the ocean and, uh, you know, I, I like being on the beach, but (laughs) I don't know if I like, because I'll tell you, Natalia, I am terrified of whales. And when I watched this documentary and it was like, I think it was day one when you guys were like, oh, look at the whale. And there's this (laughs) whale in the background. No, I'm get me off the boat named Doris. I'm done. (laughs) 
Well, I mean, I love looking at the ocean and I, I do actually love being on the ocean as well. So even though I hadn't done any ocean rowing, I don't think you've ever done any ocean rowing before yeah. you actually head out on an, on an expedition. But I've done quite a lot of sailing uh-huh. uh, and spent time on the ocean. So I thought, well, let me see if I like rowing. So I went to the gym, sat on a rowing machine for about an hour and a half, and I loved it. I really enjoyed the motion. I found it quite meditative. Mm-hmm. Um, but I suppose ultimately I, I believed that it wasn't going to be a physical challenge. I, I really thought that the challenge would be more of a mental one over the physical. So I applied, I suppose, never really expecting anything to, to come of it, Um and be careful what you wish for, because right. I suppose now, about two and a half years later, here I am having rode across the Pacific. <laughs> well, how many people actually applied for that? Um, there was a couple of recruitment processes. Um, I got involved in the second recruitment process, and in the the process that I was involved with, there was about 35 women that applied. Mm-hmm. So not a huge number, but it it was such a big commitment. Right. Um, but it was it was actually quite a large number for such a big commitment. And then that obviously was whittled down to actually have face to face interviews. The selection process was was fairly rigorous. There was interviews with a sports psychologist, strength and conditioning tests. Um, we had interview and group. I'm sorry, individual and group interviews that were run. And then six women were chosen and, um, sorry, 10 women were chosen and we were all taken to a part of the UK where we were essentially put under almost army training. So we were sleep deprived for 48 hours. We were given different tasks to perform, opportunity to each take leadership roles, and we were monitored to see how we dealt with all of the situations, how we supported one another, how we led. And from that, the team was chosen. Uh, I suppose with a little bit of um, self-deselection as well in the process. Right. A couple of people yeah. said, yeah, maybe not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think right. when they really appreciated the enormity of, of the challenge and how long it was going to take and, and how much was involved in the actual preparation and the run-up to getting to the start line, because I think that was almost as challenging as the row itself, really, was actually getting to the start line. Sure. So you were quite an adventurer long before this big adventure. What were some of the things that you you had done leading up to this? That, I mean, you said you were coming off um, a safari <laughs> expedition. So what were some of the things you had done prior to this? Yeah, I suppose I've always enjoyed being outside of my comfort zone um, for some strange reason. I, I just believe that when you challenge yourself, um, that's when you learn the most about Um, who you are and it's where we do our most growth and personal development and I've always believed that we should try and do things that we're passionate about as well so um, from a very early age travel was always one of my biggest passions and I got involved in the travel industry Um, so I began that journey as an adventure travel tour leader and that took me to some incredible destinations where I was leading tours um, modular tours, actually, so either three or four week tours where the change in team dynamic would happen because people would come and go during those three or four weeks. And I was responsible for for everything really during the time that the people were traveling with me. And that was an incredible experience. It allowed me to immerse myself in different cultures and really gain a deeper understanding into to people, I suppose, and, and how we all work and how different and unique we all are. So I stayed in the travel industry. Um, after tour leading, I moved more into management and operational management. So I was still based in destination but making sure that everything was running smoothly on the ground. So I spent a lot of time in the Middle East, in Asia, and in Latin America. And I, th- I suppose everything just spiraled from there, really. Um, I got used to living this very contractual life. So every year, I would move to a different destination. So I I was used to change, to transiency, and... I think that prepared me hugely for the row, actually, and um, 
just dealing with the fact that things would change at a moment's notice. Because I think when you do anything and you're immersed in Mother Nature, you you never really know what's going to happen. There's always some element of the unknown involved in that. Um, yeah. So let's talk about the row. Um, for those of you who have not seen this documentary, you need to watch it because you can hear it or see it on paper and go, mm-hmm, okay. But then really breaking it down to almost 9,000 miles, nine months at sea on this very small vessel. And so let's talk about that a little bit. Um, how did this happen and how, what was the shifts on the boat like and the dynamic? Just tell me the story. Okay, perfect. So we headed off from San Francisco and the plan was to row to Cairns in Australia. It was um, a three-stage row or three legs of the journey. So we made two stopovers, one in Hawaii and one in Samoa, which gave us an opportunity to restock the boats with food and supplies, do any boat maintenance that needed to be done and to swap in one of the team members. So three of us did the full journey, as I mentioned before, myself, Laura, and Emma. Now, did you know that you were going to do the whole journey, or was it kind of a up-in-the-air thing with the sub? Yeah, yeah, no. So I I knew that I was doing the full journey. Um, And then Izzy rode the first leg of the journey. Uh, Lizanne took over for the second leg, and Meg for the third leg. And I think when I look back at that journey now, it was perfect the way it happened and I think having those three legs of the journey and different team essentially because it was a very different team dynamic for each of those legs of the journey almost made it feel like three separate adventures Uh and I think for the three of us doing the full journey really helped to break that enormous expedition down into much more manageable size chunks because when I looked at that project as a whole it really did feel very overwhelming you know the fact that it was just under 9,000 miles and the amount of time it was going to take us so for me it was all about breaking everything down into these chunks of time that mentally I could assimilate and I could deal with so that happened even more with regards to the shift so we rode in two hour shifts it was two hours on two hours off 24 hours a day so and, when we were and there were two people rowing at any given time so you right. literally so we, rode two hours maybe slept two hours got back up rode two hours slept two hours. exactly so we rode in pairs and when we weren't rowing we would spend time inside the cabin um so we had six rowing shifts and then six rest shifts and two of those rest shifts would be awake shifts where we would eat we would do any um any boat checks, we would write blogs, we would um, just do anything that needed to be done, wash, for example, that type of thing in those two awake shifts. And the other four shifts would be rest or sleep shifts. So generally speaking, by the time we'd got into the cabin and gone through, you know, hygiene and cleaned and tried to dry ourselves off as much as possible, we generally got about 90 minutes sleep at a time. Oh so. That was also a very interesting part of the journey. We had to move from what we call monophasic sleeping, which is what we all do normally. You know, if you're lucky, you get between six and eight hours sleep into this polyphasic sleeping, um, which is short, regular periods of sleep. So for us, it was normally no longer than 90 minutes at a time. Now, were you a good sleeper before? Was Are you good with sleep deprivation? Well, I've I've never really known if I was good (laughs) at sleep deprivation. And that was a a big fear of mine, actually, because I love my sleep. Like, Uh I need eight hours sleep. And, yeah, I really, I was quite worried about that and pleasantly surprised at the outcome. I I found that I, I adapted very, very quickly. I fell into that routine almost instantly. Uh, When we had to wake up, I woke up. Again, very quickly, I found myself to be quite alert instantly compared to some of the other girls. Um, It was interesting. In fact, I wish we'd studied the effects of sleep deprivation because some of the things that happened to some of the other girls out there was amazing and fascinating. And to give you an example, within the first four hours of the trip, 
I was rowing with Laura at the time and we headed out from San Francisco under the Golden Gate Bridge uh, at about two, three in the morning because of the tide. So we had to leave in darkness. And Mm -hmm. so it was about four hours in and Laura uh, turned around to me and she said, can you see the pirate ship? And she could see this huge old fashioned wooden pirate ship sailing next to us. And I just looked at her and I was like, what pirate ship? And that was essentially the beginning of her hallucinations that lasted the whole trip. So Laura and Lizanne would hallucinate (laughs) a lot of the time. Lizanne saw a black and white cat jump on the boat. Laura would have conversations with other team members that weren't even on the boat. It was the bizarrest thing. And then this phenomena, which we called gobbledygook, where you'd be having a conversation at nighttime and then suddenly the girls would go off on, an, on a tangent and talk about something completely irrelevant. And so night times were interesting, very, very interesting. Um, that is so funny. Yeah. Were you a little bit nervous when she saw the pirate ship on the first day? <laughs> I just thought, uh-oh, you know, this is literally <laughs> the start of what's to come. And to be honest, it, I found that the nighttime shifts, um, I was entertained a lot with the other girls because I would literally sit there and wait for something bizarre to be mentioned. And it almost was this sense of, you know, what's going to happen this two hour shift. And it kept me distracted, which was also a really big part of the the journey, especially those night times was just trying to distract ourselves as much as possible because there's something about the darkness, isn't there? You know, your mind plays tricks on you and, you really didn't want to think about what was out there. So what? luckily in leg one, Izzy actually discovered that she had this amazing ability where she could narrate films word for word. She's got a nice <laughs> photographic memory, so she's got this wonderful sense of just retaining everything. So in a two-hour rowing shift, she would recount films like Forrest Gump or Lord of the Rings trilogy or Pretty Woman and would just keep us entertained completely for the whole rowing shift. And it was amazing. That is amazing. Yeah, all of the other girls tried to do it. And some of them had certain films that they'd seen over and over again that they could recount. But it was definitely a, a particular skill that Izzy had. And, yeah, I loved that in leg one. It was a great way to set us off on the trip, I think. That's really funny. My husband and I were talking about the documentary last night, and you did the photography and the video work, right, for the film? Yes, I and did. so did that help you sort of have a distraction, you think, that maybe gave you an advantage because you had this other project on the side? That's a really interesting question, actually. Um, I've always had a love of photography. I've never really done filming before. In fact, none of us had ever been involved with filming and certainly weren't comfortable with being in in front of the camera. So that was a big challenge and learning curve, I think, for the whole team. But um, possibly because... You know, there were so many beautiful, magical moments that we encountered out there. Um, Obviously, you know, putting the challenge and the the frustration aside. And I knew that part of, you know, my job was capturing as much of it as possible. But I think I've also always lived by a mantra, which is to enjoy the journey as much as possible. And I think that was possibly one of the biggest strengths that I brought to the team was that for me, life's all about being in the moment as much as possible. And to be in the moment, essentially, you do have to stop and absorb what's going on around you. And and so for me, you know, I would make an effort to do that as much as possible. And while I was doing that, if there was a camera near me, obviously, I would grab it and actually capture that moment visually as well. But I think it was it was more about ensuring that as a team, we enjoyed that journey as much as possible because I think it was so easy to just think about the end point and just think about that destination because, you know, we were quite desperate to get there. And I think for a lot of the other team as well, you know, there were certain other issues that came into play. I don't I don't want to say anything to ruin um, the documentary for anyone that hasn't seen it. But for me, you know, Cairns was obviously we needed to have that focus and know where we were going and have that end point to our goal. But 
really the the most beautiful part about the journey was actually experiencing it as it happened. Um, so possibly, possibly the fact that I did want to capture those moments allowed me to go deeper into those moments. But mm-hmm. I think I would have stopped and enjoyed them anyway. One of the things that's so great about this documentary is how just it's beautiful, of course, but it was it had the drama that you would maybe expect for such a monumental task, but I felt like it was just so tastefully done. When I first heard about it, I thought, oh my gosh, four women on a boat. This is going to be like the housewives of Beverly Hills. (laughs) You know, I just figured how can you put four women on a boat for that long in the middle of nowhere? But I love that the documentary was devoid of like catty drama. And I don't, maybe y'all didn't have any catty drama because the, the task was so big, but I just thought it was such a beautiful picture of teamwork and struggle and triumph. And, um, so just kudos to you guys on that. Thank you. I mean, I think we, you know, we did try to prepare ourselves as much as possible and because the six of us came together specifically for the expedition. So we didn't know each other. There was a lot of work that we did beforehand to, to really get to grips with who we were as, as people and different personalities, because we are completely different people, which I think comes across in the documentary as well. And so we did a lot of work with our sports psychologist, Keith Goddard. We did a lot of personality profiling, uh, conflict management, um, you know, dealing with difficult situations, learning how to bring out the best in each other, understanding what would bring out the worst in us as well. Mm -hmm. And we did constant reviews on the boat as well, which I think was really fundamental. You know, every week we would fill out questionnaires and discuss how we were all feeling, you know, as individuals mentally and physically and emotionally. And if we had any issues and if we had any concerns, it was a really good opportunity to air them and to share. And I think we had to be so open and honest and transparent with one another out there because, you know, ultimately our lives depended on each other. And I'd say the underlying connection that we had, despite our differences, was this incredible trust and respect that we shared. And I think that's what saw us through. We also shared the same values and we tied our values together using the acronym SPIRIT, which you you can see on the boats. um, There's the word SPIRITS on our our bulkhead that you see, but that actually SPIRIT actually stands for strength, perseverance, integrity, resilience, inspiration, and trust. And we really lived by those values and, and I think held each other accountable to those values. Um, every day that we were out on the ocean as well. And, you know, obviously we're sleep deprived, we're in extreme conditions and we're only human. So there were moments where, you know, we were uncomfortable and, and tempers would flare. But the the wonderful thing about all of us is that we were really good at, at confronting and then letting things go. So not holding on to that negativity and allowing it to build up. We 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 had what we called a pebble in a shoe. So if you had any kind of issue that was like a pebble in a shoe, you know, if you walk on a pebble, it will just get more and more painful unless you take that pebble out of that shoe. So that's how we dealt with any issues that we had. We We would have to confront the person necessary if we had a problem with them, because otherwise we knew that that negativity would just get too much. And, you know, the last thing you wanted was to hate someone so much that you literally <laughs> wanted to kick them off, off that the boat. boat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and there's also that sort of dependence because you're in the middle of the ocean and you really, really rely on these people. So how, how long yeah. were you together before the expedition to kind of build that trust? Cause you said, you know, the tea and spirit was trust. I mean, do you yeah. think you were together long enough to truly build that trust going onto the boat? Um, yeah, I think for the, the four of us that set off, um, we worked really hard getting to the start line. So we did a lot of work together before actually stepping onto the boat. Mm-hmm. And because there was so much to do to get Doris to the start line, we, we did everything ourselves. So 
We were doing all of our own PR, media, marketing, logistics, admin, the legal side of things, mental, physical, practical training, and doing all of this whilst holding down full-time jobs. So we actually had to divide the the responsibility up, and we all had different areas of the project to lead on, and we all had to be accountable for you know accomplishing certain goals that um, we were dealing with. And we would, again, have those constant review sessions. And I think that was a, a really big part of the, the process of trusting and getting to know one another, because in a lot of situations, you know, you, you take things personally, and we would get very used to giving each other constructive criticism and not taking it personally. And in fact, using that constructive criticism to actually just improve ourselves and grow as people and develop new skills, because a lot of us were doing um, things that we'd never done before getting to the start line. Right. Um, So I think that trust was very much developed in those early stages. And then obviously with that change in team dynamic, trust was fundamental as well. So you can imagine Lizanne coming in in leg two. She's coming into a team that have already spent you know, 84 days out on the ocean and they, they've been through something together and she has no idea what she's going to be heading into. And I think if she didn't have that trust in us, then that would have been a very, very difficult situation. She sometimes says that it almost felt like she was being kidnapped <laughs> because she had no idea what was going on and she was coming into this um, existing, very strong team. But that was what we, we made a really big point to ensure that that the, the different team member coming in was fully integrated. So we had a week in each of our stopovers, and during that time, we made sure that um, the team member leaving was, you know, debrief, debriefed really well. There was a proper handover. We had some social activities that we did beforehand just to get used to being together before we got onto that boat. And then, as I said, those weekly review sessions really helped for everybody just to to know where where we were as individuals mentally, I think, because, you know, we we all went through our own personal journeys and we just wanted to make sure that we could support one another, I suppose, as much as possible. I'm just in awe of the mental toughness aspect of what you guys accomplished. I mean, I've done you know, 24 hour events, well, 17 hour events with Ironman. And I've been an hour 15 or 16 thinking I'm going to die. I can't go on. And then I see this documentary and I can't even fathom the mental toughness that it took. How much do you estimate of this journey was mental versus physical? I'd say about 90% mental. Mm Mm-hmm. It really was. And I, I think, you know, we all have access to the most powerful tools that exist in the world. And, and that is our, our own minds. And I, th- I think, like I said, that breaking everything down made it a lot more manageable for me. So if I had a particularly difficult two hour shift, for example, I, you know, I knew that let's say I was one and a half hours through. So I had one particularly bad shift. It was a nighttime shift and I had salt sores all over my body. I had a really, really bad skin irritation under my arm. So every time I was putting the oar and taking a stroke, that was really painful. And normally within the first 10 minutes of a rowing shift, I, I found that all the pain desensitized and it was fine. But for some reason, this shift, the pain just wasn't going away. It was a really high, um, there was a lot of high wind and the waves were coming over the boat. And it was just, I was finding it very, very uncomfortable. And I heard myself saying, I can't do this. I can't do it. I can't do it. And then it was almost like this, it was really bizarre, actually, this this inner voice. I just heard this inner voice say, you can do it. And it was just really, and I was like, I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. It was almost like just repeating these mantras over and over again. And I thought, okay, I know that I only have 45 minutes left of this shift. Right. And so that's how I dealt with it. I just got through those 45 minutes and then I knew that I could rest. And then I also knew that when I came back out, it would be different and it would change and I would feel differently. And, and I also tried to set my mental, like set my intention before I came out onto the oars every, every rowing shift as well. So again, it would be like, okay, I'm going to enjoy 
this journey. Again, you're going back to the mantra or, you know, I'm going to concentrate on the light reflecting on the ocean for this shift. Or we we would also chat to each other and see where we were each um, mentally and decide whether we were going to speak to one another and we were going to tell stories for that shift. Or we wanted to be silent and have a reflective shift, in which case we would listen to our own music or we we just would would pass that shift in silence. So it was a case of just setting your intention every two hours, which is it's quite an amazing way to deal with things, I suppose. Um, you know, in life, I find that, you know, the sun sets on a new day. And if you've had a really bad day, you're like, okay, tomorrow's a new day. And again, you wake up and you can just start again. And you, you set your intention to be positive for that day. Whereas out there on the ocean, it was every two hours, I would set my intention for, for what I wanted that two hours to bring me. And that's how I dealt with it, really. I love it. I love it. So tell me about Fernando the shark. Oh, Fernando. Oh, my gosh. I saw that on your website. I was like, okay, number one, <laughs> that's is that a great white? Number two, she named it Fernando. Like, how, what do we do with this information? <laughs> so I oh, know I about Fernando. Fernando. So Fernando was actually a Galapagos shark. Oh, okay. And he followed the boat for two weeks. Oh, no. In, in leg two, yeah. No. Um, yeah, we have we we still really have no idea why exactly. Oh my um, gosh! Now, yeah, do those kind of sharks are those people eaters? <laughs> I I mean, they're not great white sharks. So for me, they weren't looks as like one. Yeah, I, I, I suppose the mind plays tricks on you out there as well a little bit, and the wildlife very much became a huge part of our experience and we named all of our wildlife so you know the whales and the birds and the turtles there was like Tommy the turtle and Bertie the booby and Fernando all the sharks got given Spanish names for some reason so (laughs) Fernando I love Spanish so Fernando followed us for two weeks in leg two and then in leg three we had Eduardo and Eduardo came to visit us at night time as well, which was quite bizarre. Now, what kind of shark was Eduardo? Also, also a Galapagos. Oh. And, and the reason we know this is that, you know, we managed to take um, photos using, we use GoPros on, on sticks that we put down into the water to get the underwater shots. And we would send them with our blogs. So we actually blogged every day we were out there. So for 257 days, uh, there was always a blog that went out and we would ask, you know, all of our followers for advice and help. And so with the sharks, we're like, you know, what is this shark? (laughs) Is he going to eat us today? (laughs) (laughs) Yes or no? Let's take a poll. (laughs) Now, were you, I mean, obviously going into this rowing expedition, you knew wildlife was a thing, but were there, were there any moments where you were truly terrified? Was, was the shark following a little bit scary? I, Again, we we were all different. So Meg was pet. Meg is petrified of sharks. So for her, Eduardo was a was a really big thing. Whereas for me, I looked at Fernando as a. I'm sorry, Eduardo as a friend. Uh-huh. And so every time he came near the boat, for me, it was this this great excitement actually that he was there. And if if a day went by that I didn't see him, I actually felt upset that he hadn't come to visit. So. I, there wasn't any fear, obviously he was in the water and I was quite happy for him to be in the water <laughs> when there was some night, big seas at night time and, you know, those waves would, would be towering over us. You know, there was, there were moments that I thought, you know, the last thing I would want would be for a wave to crash over the boat and for Eduardo to accidentally <laughs> be in that wave. You know, I definitely <laughs> didn't want Eduardo on the boat. I was quite happy for him to be next to us, but not on the boat. Um, oh my gosh, that think kills me. The whale, the whales were were terrifying. Oh um, my gosh, Natalia, I'm so scared of whales. Oh. Not because I think they're going to eat me, but just the size and the the greatness exactly. of them. Is that what terrified you? You thought, oh my gosh, this whale's just going to like... Yeah, it was more that we we had no idea where they were and if they would come up, like would they surface under the boat? Right. What did like they think Moby Doris Dick. was? Exactly. Did they think Doris was maybe another whale? We had one whale that circled us for a full two-hour rowing shift and I and mean, we got the spray from its blowhole. It was that close. And we we were, we were just wondering, you know, does it think Doris is another whale? And is it going to try and mate Doris? <laughs> you know, there was all those unknowns. And, 
with, with the whales, they, they spend so much of their time under the surface of the water. And then, you know, they suddenly come up and you, you hear the, the spray from the blowhole, but you never really know where they are. So it was almost that I've honestly never experienced adrenaline like it. I think in the documentary, I say it was the most unbelievable feeling that I really did want to bottle it and keep it because it was this two-hour adrenaline-filled excitement of wondering where on earth that whale was and what it was going to do. Um, but they're such incredible, majestic creatures. And I think, again, ultimately, the way that I dealt with the whole journey was I, I had this unquestioning trust in everything. I think that's how I had to deal with the nine months. I trusted myself. I trusted the team. I trusted Doris. I trusted the ocean. And I suppose because I had this real trust, I, I felt like the ocean would protect us and would look after us. And that included all of the wildlife within it. And, you know, there were times where I, I felt like the wildlife was almost accompanying us mm -hmm. and was part of our journey. And, you know, the whales were there just to, to give us that break of monotony and that excitement and bring us so fully into the present and into the moment, which is, you know, the most magical place that we can be when we're in the moment. We had these schools of fish that... Um, would follow the boat like night after night after night. And they really did feel like they were escorting us during the journey. So I think, you know, as, as, as huge as they are and petrifying as they are, it was, it was that belief that I had that it would all be okay. So what happened when you guys got to the equator? To the equator? Oh, it was, yeah, a long-awaited uh, arrival there. And we were really hoping it would be during the day, but it was actually middle of the night. So we were told that you have to toast Neptune when you get to the equator. And again, you know, we really wanted to look after the ocean as much as possible because we knew that we were in her hands. Uh, so we had a little bottle of rum, Captain Morgan's Spice Gold, my favorite rum. And we did a toast to Neptune. And then we each had a, a slug of rum. And then we carried on rowing, actually. It was quite unceremonious, apart from a, a brief stop. But the next day, when it was daylight, we, we wanted to actually get into the water and, and, and dip in into the ocean, because that's what you're supposed to do when you actually get to the equator. And yeah, going into that ocean was an interesting experience because there's just this unimaginable depth underneath you. And similar to the whale feeling, really, this exhilaration mixed with, with quite a lot of trepidation as well. So, because that was the first time you actually got in the water. No, no. We, we'd been in the water before, but every time we went into the water, there was always that anticipation. You know, you never really knew what was underneath you. So we would only go in two at a time. Um, you know, one of the, the team would always do shark watch. In case Eduardo uh, and Fernando. Case, yeah, exactly. <laughs> came anywhere near. Um, but it was, yeah, the, the most beautiful blue I've ever seen, actually. And when it was sunny and still, because there were, there were some moments, especially in leg two, when we went through the doldrums and we were crossing the equator, where the ocean would go so still and flat that literally you could stand up and look over the side of the boat and see your reflection. It was that flat and still, which you would just never expect the ocean to be. But so it was only when conditions allowed that we would actually go, go into the water. And the light, sometimes the beams of light would just stream up from, they would be reflected and stream up from the sky and the bottom of the ocean. And it was very magical and also really wonderful to be able to move your body, actually. I think for me, it was that, that movement because we just did this backwards and forwards movement all the time, whereas in the ocean you could move your body in any way that you wanted, and that was a, a really wonderful respite from the monotony of the rowing. Tell me about sunscreen. When you're out in the open for this many months, what did you guys 
did you just slather sunscreen all the time? Were you wearing hats? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We always, um, we were really religious with our sunscreen application. Um, so every two hours when we were coming out to row, we would reapply sunscreen. Mm-hmm. Um, and ama- amazingly, none of us burnt at all. I think because it was quite a gradual process because leg one started off being quite cold and everything got warmer and warmer and hotter and hotter. So I think just making sure that we were always covered in sunscreen and we had hats when we got closer to Australia and we knew that the, um, you know, the ozone layer was um, a little bit thinner and it was a a lot more damaging the sun. We would actually wear long sleeve tops as well to row in and just try and cover up as much as possible. But But there was a lot of naked rowing. (laughs) (laughs) I did note that. (laughs) A lot of naked rowing. And I thought, you know what? I think I would naked row too in the middle of the ocean. (laughs) It's just the sharks and my friends to see. When it was midday, we really didn't do that much naked rowing because <laughs> we were concerned about, you know, the, the exposure to the sun. That right. was a big concern. Um, it was more, you, you didn't really want the, the chafing or right. rubbing of anything. So we, we all did um, bottomless rowing, uh, and that was because we, we actually sat on sheepskin and the the skin on the sheepskin is the best way to deal with pressure sores and salt salt sores and that type of thing because when you're wearing bikini bottoms or or any other type of clothing the salt because you're constantly getting splashed by salt water and then that salt dries and then it crystallizes and then it starts to rub and that can just cause even more skin irritation um, so we found that that was the, the best way to deal with those salt, salt sores. The pressure wounds we got anyway because we were spending, well, most of the time really out there on our asses. So yeah, that that was just inevitable. And did you anticipate um, that you would be doing naked rowing? No, I, did, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't actually. And we, 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 like I said, we were covered up most of the time, but it was. You know, this wonderful sense of freedom, yeah. you know. Um, it was just when we came across boats, you never really knew how far away they were. It's like, should we, should we put our bottoms on? <laughs> <laughs> okay, put your bottoms on, put your bottoms on. They might have binoculars, you right. never know. We might be attracting the wrong kind of pirate ship here. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. But, you know, and at night time, especially in leg one when it was colder, we were actually in wet weather gear. So there was a real mix of, of what we were wearing during the nine months actually. But so you reached the shore and then, and then what did you experience the massive letdown that can happen after a big task like this? Uh, I suppose for me on a very personal level, I, I wasn't excited to reach Cairns because there was, something very magical about being out there on the on the ocean and that very simple way of life and having no responsibilities and no commitments and just being surrounded by this breathtaking beauty and being able to be in the moment as much as possible it was it almost turned into some type of meditation for me out there and I knew that getting back to land would would bring with it you know a lot of normality and pressure and society and everything that that comes with day-to-day living so it wasn't that I experienced this letdown it was more that I was I, I didn't really want it to end in a very bizarre way I didn't want it to end. Obviously, I did because it had been a very long time and it was challenging. But I think I concentrated more on the beauty than anything else. Um, We were very busy on arrival. Our parents were there, which was wonderful. So we actually did a day of media and then we split up and we spent four or five days with our respective families. And then we flew back to the UK where we had a week of Uh, media whirlwind and we didn't really have that much time to think about anything it was only I think probably two weeks after the end of the expedition where we actually all went home and things settled and 
If I'm very honest with you, I don't think the enormity of what we did, I, I don't even think it's sunk in now. I think the documentary definitely highlighted it a lot more for all of us. Um, it's been an incredibly surreal and humbling experience for me having the documentary available on Netflix. It's, you know, it's meant that I've had people from all over the world contacting um, me and reaching out to us. And, and that has been an, an incredible experience for us, I think. And, you know, the last line of the documentary is what we say is, although we may have crossed our literal Pacific, we, we really do believe that everybody has their own Pacific to cross or their own challenges to face. And what has been very special is the, the amount of people that have been reaching out and sharing their challenges and their Pacific with us and saying that the documentary has really helped to put a lot of things into perspective for them or given them that little extra boost or inspiration to actually begin their journey. Um, and that's been very, very special, very, very special. Um, and I think for us, you know, all we really did was get onto that boat and row it. And we didn't really think about anything else. So I don't know. I think something of this kind of nature maybe takes a little bit longer for it to really sink in. You know, I think it's, it's part of us all and, and maybe it'll just take time to, to understand the, the deep changes that have taken place. Well, it's just an incredible story. And I love the way that you find just magic and, and beauty and everything and I know you do do some coaching. And so talk about a little bit how you do you coach athletes? Is it life coaching? What kind of coaching do you do? Yeah, so a lot of people say, you know, has your life changed since the row? And I suppose in, in essence, it has because I, I decided not to go back into the travel industry. And I just felt that the insights from the journey and, and having this wonderfully powerful story to share has given me this incredible platform really to to be able to go out into the world and to connect with lots of different people and different net, networks and communities and and help them realize that you know we can all do extraordinary things and that really we, we all have the power within us to to, to, to do whatever it is we set our minds to, essentially. And I have this firsthand experience of that now. And so I'm doing inspirational speaking and coaching where I suppose ultimately I'm just trying to carry on that little phrase that I said before, which is I, you know, I, I know that everybody has their own Pacific and I just want to be able to help and support as many people as possible to cross theirs. So the coaching is one-to-one um, sessions doing that. So just working on a much deeper level with anyone and everyone really. So it's not specifically athletes because I'm certainly not an athlete. You know, I wasn't an athlete. As you know, I'd never rode before. Um, and I'll probably never row again. <laughs> I was going to ask uh, you, will you ever sit on a rowing machine? Yeah, probably not. Probably <laughs> not. Um, so, and then the speaking is, I suppose, just reaching out to to a greater number of people and, and bigger audiences. And that's more dealing with teams, I suppose, because I, I talk a lot about leadership and teamwork and, you know, building successful teams in pressurized environments or the diversity and strength that comes from very different teams and, you know, the uniqueness that we all bring to a team. And then also, obviously, the mental resilience, because I think that's the most important aspect to everything is really being able to, to develop a deeper awareness of your mind and your thoughts that lead to your behaviors, because most situations that happen are essentially how you perceive them as an individual. So it's just doing a lot of work around that. And, you know, set like, you know, I don't always see the positive in everything, but I try to. And I think that's what it's about, you know, celebrating little successes along the way, rather than concentrating on on all the negative that you can very easily get bogged down in. So um, I think coaching is an incredibly powerful process because it, 
it brings in that review and reflection that we did a lot of pre-row and while we were out there on the ocean. And I think a lot of people don't take that time to stop and reflect on the last week of their life or the last month of their life or the last year of their life. And, you know, it's only when we do stop and reflect that we actually see what we've learned and, and how we can progress and how we can grow and change and, and move forward more positively. So that's a, a very big part of the coaching process and also being held accountable. Um, you know, we're, we're our own worst enemies a lot of the time, mm-hmm. um, as well as our own worst critics. And I think, True. you know, being a coach, you're, you know, I, I get to challenge people. Um, you know, I won't listen to their excuses and I'll really try and drill down into why, what, I suppose, what limits us, you know, as individuals and those, limiting beliefs that we all have that really stop us living to our full potential, essentially. Um, So, you know, I try and set set myself little challenges as well. Um, You know, a lot of people say, you know, what are you doing next? Have you got a big challenge lined up? And I don't have a huge challenge lined up, but um, a few of us from the team, so myself, um, Emma and Meg, actually, the three of us, We'd set ourselves a little swimming challenge, which I'm sure you'd appreciate. So on Sunday, I actually did my first open water swim. It was a 10-kilometer swim. That was your first? That was my first. Yeah, you know me. Uh, All or nothing. (laughs) Go home. My goodness. So that was a, a really interesting experience. And again, I was able to put a lot of the techniques into practice, I suppose. And it was it was actually done. It was a it was um, a river that had weirs in it, so you essentially had to get out at certain points to walk across and get back in because of the weirs, uh, and so it broke the the journey down naturally into four sections. Mm-hmm. And again, I found that really interesting because that worked so well for me, knowing that I had four legs of that journey. Um, you know, I knew how many kilometers each of the the sections were. And I knew that once I got through the second section, which was the longest, that was three, I think it was three and a half kilometers, the second section, I knew that after that, it would get easier and easier. So yeah, again, that breaking things down really, really is quite instrumental in how I've started and will continue, I think, to to deal with challenges. So yeah, speaking and coaching and workshops. Um, I think the coaching and the workshops just allow me to drill a little bit deeper and to really, you know, give some of the, the practical tools that we used out there on the ocean and allow people to start experimenting with them and, and see if any of them work for, for them. Uh, and that's been an incredible journey as well. And I think the most beautiful part about the whole expedition from start to present day actually has been the amazing people that have been crossing my path because of it. Um, yourself included. Oh, thank you. It's, just, it's given me this opportunity to just enter so many different people's worlds and have these different experiences and, that's been truly, truly wonderful, I have to say. That's and long awesome. may it continue, yeah. So yeah. there's a, um, a pastor here in Atlanta. His name's Andy Stanley, and he talks. He talked a couple years ago about how if you don't know what you want to do in life, that one of the questions you can ask yourself is what breaks your heart? Like what do you see out there in the world that breaks your heart and and that you want to change or you want to dig into? So what have you seen in all of your travels and in your journey that that essentially breaks your heart and that you want to make a change, things that you want to get into and, and make a difference? Wow, what a what a beautiful way to put it. Um, what breaks my heart? Uh, I'm very emotional. I I didn't come across as that emotional on the boat, uh, which was interesting because I'm probably the most emotional out of all of the six of us. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think through my my years of travel in developing countries, um, I, I don't know if it's, I don't know if you necessarily need your heart. I suppose it depends on 
what breaks your heart? Is it what breaks your heart or what makes your heart sing? Because I think there's a very big difference there. And I think either of those could be a huge motivator for you finding a passion in your life. And for me, spending so much time in developing countries and being immersed in different cultures where I've come across communities that have very little, um, yet they've all had this incredible strength of spirit. And that has always been something that has truly inspired me and was actually a big reason why I wanted to do the row. I I just thought that the row would be a catalyst for me having to go very deep within to find that strength of spirit that I think we all have. So I just want everyone to be happy. I, I think ultimately that's all I've ever wanted in life. And for that reason, I've just wanted to be able to make a difference in some small way with everything that I've done. And I think there's so many ways that you can do that. Um, But I think by following things in life that make your heart sing, that really feed your soul, you're essentially always going to be able to make a difference in some way. Um, I was very distressed by the plastic pollution that I saw in the ocean. Um, In leg one, there was about a week to two weeks actually where we only came across plastic we didn't see any wildlife and because oh my we, goodness. we were quite low to the surface of the water and we traveled quite slowly we could even see the the very small micro pieces of plastic as well we were apparently on the edge of the great pacific garbage patch which is renowned for you know uh, it's, it's one of the areas where the plastic is collecting as well as the gyres that there are in the oceans as well you know which is um also the their natural collection spots because of the currents for, for the plastic so that really is something that breaks my heart um and i think because of the very deep connection I've developed with the ocean now as well, like, it's something that I would like to explore. Um, but I, I suppose, yeah, I just, I just want to inspire, I think the young as well, I think the younger generation coming up now are, are living in a world with social media and technology the way it is, they're under so much more pressure than we were yeah. growing up. And I, I really want everybody to appreciate the power of connection I think for me my big thing is connection and there's three parts of connection there's the human connection so making sure that you are connecting deeply with others you know whether it's your family or your friends or your community or your society is is having that real interaction and connection and that was something that was really beautiful out there on the ocean because we had the time and the space to really listen to one another and to be present. You know, there was no distraction. There wasn't mobile phones and social media and all of this really very, I mean, you you find, don't you, you get onto Facebook and two hours later you're, you're still on Facebook. spiraling <laughs> down into this vortex of Facebook and you think, oh, my goodness, you know, where is that two hours gone? And I think, you know, that human connection is really, really important. And then connecting to the environment. So that connection to nature, being outside, again, you know, with technology the way it is, a lot of the youth today are spending so much more time inside rather than being you know, outside playing in parks and just just getting involved really with nature. And then that, that inner connection, you know, that connection to yourself is really, really important and trying to work out what's going on in your mind and, and, and being more aware of how, how you perceive situations, I think, um, because that's all life is really, how you perceive situations. Mm-hmm. You know, and we can control that, which is, I've not really answered your question. Huh? That's okay. I love it. I'm just a troll. <laughs> and then every I went off on a while, bit of a tangent, but. Um... <laughs> no, I'm listening enthralled. And then every once in a while, Eduardo will go by in my head. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what is uh, something that you do on a daily basis that you think really contributes to your good state of mind and your positivity and, and sort of um, your success? What is something you do on a daily basis? Uh, wherever possible, I'll begin the day with a 10-minute meditation. 
um, it can be just sitting in silence for 10 minutes. Otherwise, it will be a guided meditation, depending on how I'm feeling. I've done a couple of, they're called Vipassana. They're 10-day silent retreats. Um, and they're based on a, a Buddhist philosophy um, that everything changes. And so Goenkaji is the, is the guru, I suppose, that initiated the, the Vipassana meditation. So there's a 10-minute meditation that he does that I generally use every morning wherever possible. Um, I always try and do some kind of physical activity every day, even if it's just getting outside and walking around the block, just to make sure that I'm doing something physical. But I will try and get to the gym or do something active as much as possible. Because for me at the moment, particularly because I'm not involved in, in any big expeditions or anything like that, that, that is my moment of utter focus and being present. And I, I find that that's really invaluable just to know that you've had half an hour or an hour or, you know, however long of being totally, completely and utterly in the moment and focused. And I will end the day um, thinking about a highlight. So I'll always do my best to find a highlight from every day. And, and I think that makes you look for the positive as much as you can and that's something we did on the boat as well so in our rowing pairs we would always share a daily highlight and that highlight literally could have been anything but we just needed to make a point to look for those positives as much as we could yeah in our family we watched a movie years ago called it's a bruce willis and michelle pfeiffer movie called the story of us and they posed a question to their kids at dinner every night that said hi low what was your high for the day what was your low yeah. And we joke in our family, my husband and my daughter are very positive just by nature. They were born that way. And my my son and I tend to be a little bit more crotchety and we're just not like naturally positive. So we can always come up with our negative. <laughs> we can come up with our low like immediately. And so it's been a great exercise to, and, and my husband's like, no, you have to come up with the high first. And I'm, I'm much better. I'm, I'm definitely a more positive person than I used to be. But my son, who's nine, he's like, well, I can tell you three lows for today, <laughs> but I don't have a positive. So I love the way that you focus on gratitude and positivity because it's definitely a practice. I think yeah. some people are po more positive by nature, but it is a practice and you, you practice it. Yeah. Man, I mean, that's an interesting point, nature or nurture, you know, <laughs> I, I, who knows, you know, maybe I am similar to, to your husband and your daughter and just naturally, I, I, I've always been, a, you know, looked through the world with rose tinted glasses mm -hmm. as much as possible, I suppose. And that's just because that's how I've chosen Right. to want to see the world. Um, but I think highlights and lowlights, yeah, that it's a really, it's a great exercise. And like you say, it does become a practice. And you also need the lowlights because they're, they're, they're the learnings. You know, most of the learnings come from those lowlights. And, right. you know, when you're in challenging situations, that's, that is when you do your most growth. So, you know, I, I, I suppose it's just, altering how you look at challenge you know for some people it's it's so scary and it's filled with fear and there's a lot of negativity that comes with it whereas for me it's it's a it's a great opportunity essentially it's an opportunity to further yourself and to develop more mental resilience or you know to see how you react to a certain situation which I I just find interesting I find people and our minds fascinating and um, you know we're all work in progress we all have our good days we all have our bad days and I think ultimately we actually as people we reflect the ocean so perfectly you know we ebb and flow and we rise and fall and we have our days when we're confused and angry or we feel powerful and other days where you know, we're calm and peaceful and reflective and, you know, we're, we're constantly changing and moving. And so, you know, that's, that's, that's life. I love Isn't it. it. Natalia, you are so great. And for you guys out there who have not seen this documentary, you must watch it and you must watch it with your young daughters because my eight-year-old daughter was just totally fascinated by it and empowered. And it's such a great example 
of what the human spirit can do and endure and persevere. And so I, it's just wonderful. So Natalia, where can we find you on the interwebs? <laughs> interwebs. Um, I've got a website. Um, so that's uh, Natalia um, at nataliacohen.co.uk. Okay. And then I'm on Instagram. I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with social media, I'll uh. tell you now. <laughs> um, but um, Instagram and Twitter and Facebook as well. Um, I'm sure you can put the links. Yes, I will. I will put it, the links so that's up. That's great. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you and for I'd, taking yeah, I'd love as, as many people as possible to connect. And because, yeah. like I said, that's life's all about connection, really. Well, we'll get some new new friends from across the pond for you. Perfect. <laughs> well, thank you, Natalia. I look thank forward you. to following you and seeing all the good things you're doing. So thank you. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure chatting. This episode is brought to you by Sarah's amazing, functional, and beautiful bike racks for your car. Check out swimbikemom.com forward slash giveaway for a Sarah's rack that they are awesomely donating as a giveaway for you guys. <laughs>